Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Work. My name is Bill DeFilippo. I'm your host tonight, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, what's going on? I am, I'm trying to remember how this all works. It's been a minute since I've been on one of these between, you know, work and fatherhood and everything else that's happened in my life in the last few months. It, it is, it is a podcasting is a lot like riding a bike in that we, you can get injured very easily doing it. Uh, but we're not here to talk about podcasting and get into all that stuff. We're here to talk about Penn State and Penn State is in its bye week. It's entering 5 and 0 with wins over West Virginia, Delaware, Illinois, Iowa, and Northwestern to start the season. All pretty emphatic wins. And yet there's two, my read on it is that there's simultaneously optimism and a little bit of consternation among Penn State fans over elements of this team. So what we're going to do a little bit later in the podcast is we're going to put out some hot takes. Matt and I are going to give out a hot take we have for both the offense and the defense to talk through them a bit. And then we put out a call on our Twitter account at RLR blog for all of you to give us some of your hot takes and we'll talk through some of those. And we're also going to get through to uh, addressing a couple questions we got on Spotify that Matt and I are uniquely suited to answer. And we'll get to why in a second. But before we do that, Matt, like you said, you haven't been on the pod here in a while and we're now at the bye week. We're now at the best point in the season to kind of survey the lay of the land, to look back on what we said and apply that to what is what the future might hold. And at the beginning of the season, we all gave uh, our picks in one way or another what we thought Penn State was going to do this season. I said 10-2. and two. I addressed that a little bit on the last episode of the podcast. What was your preseason prediction? And five games in with the sample of what we've seen out of Penn State and what we've seen out of the rest of Penn State's schedule, how do you feel about that right now? Uh, I believe my prediction was 11 and one. Like you said, I, I have not, I don't think I even went on record unless uh, one of you guys read off a prediction for me back um, six, seven weeks ago when we were doing the preseason stuff. But uh, yeah, I said 11 and one. And well, the path to five and zero at the bye week hasn't exactly gone exactly like I thought it would. Um, I think I'm feeling relatively confident, as confident as you can, given who Penn State's played, who we knew they were going to play up to this point. We knew basically what West Virginia was, basically what Illinois was, basically what Iowa was. Um, you know, kind of the three, quote-unquote, bigger games of, of this first half of the season or so. And big picture, I think a lot of us felt that this first part of the season was going to be very reliant on the defense while Penn State's offense kind of found its footing while Drew Aller got his feet wet, kind of got got into the rhythm of being the starting quarterback. Obviously, we saw him for 10 or 11 games last year and saw flashes of all the talent that we know he has. So I think big picture, that's kind of spot on, I think, if I can pat myself in the back a little bit for that one. But as we've talked about and you guys have talked about on previous episodes, the offensive part of that is kind of that finding its way part has kind of gone a little bit differently than I think we thought it would. The running game really hasn't found its traction, at least as far as big plays go. Um, The issues I think we thought we might see from a young quarterback, the turnovers or taking unnecessary risks, it's almost the opposite. It's almost being, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, almost being too careful. Um, But I think, like I said, big picture, this team has gotten to 5-0 probably more or less how most of us thought they would rely on that defense that we knew was going to be really, really good. I think they've, I don't want to say overachieved, but I think they've exceeded expectations. Um, and Agreed. the offense, while it hasn't 
found its way the way we thought it would find its way. Um, it's still kind of figuring things out. And as we'll talk about as we go through here, I'm sure this bye week kind of hits at the perfect point to kind of reassess things. What's worked, what hasn't worked from a Drew Aller perspective, what has he done well? What is he missing? What, you know, what's been there that, you know, as a first time starting quarterback that maybe he hasn't seen clearly on that sort of thing. Um, but you know, as confident as you can be in a season that, as we've heard for months and months, really kind of boils down to two games, the Ohio State game and the Michigan game here coming up in a few weeks um, with the first one in Columbus. I think I feel pretty good about, you know, where they're at right now and where I think they can get to over the next, you know, four to six weeks, um, ultimately leading into that game against Michigan. Yeah, I, I would say that for the more 11 and one uh 11-1, maybe, you know, God willing, 12-0 side of this. Uh, Penn State's been really good, but we can see areas where they can get better and we can project ways that they will get better. And I think that's a source of optimism for a lot of people. Matt, while you were talking, I actually went back and looked what you said in our Slack uh, back in August. You said you'd probably pick 11-1. Uh, you mentioned that they've always, for whatever reason, just played Michigan better at home. And, but you also said an equal chance and probably a better chance that they go 10 and two. And you made the point if they go 10 and two in Michigan and Ohio state are generally what people expect them to be. And they lose those two games, but still play well, you won't be disappointed. And that's kind of where I've been this entire time. I think they could go 10 and two play really well in those games and just get beaten by a pair of better football teams. Would you say you still wouldn't be disappointed if that happened? Or do you think we've seen enough out of Penn State and maybe not enough out of one of Ohio State or Michigan that you're now going, oh, you know what, I think I'd, it would leave a bit of a sour taste in my mouth if they didn't win that football game? I think there'd be a level of, I guess, disappointment for lack of a better term. I don't know if I'd be upset, though, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just because, like you said, Bill, I think, Pound for pound, I think Michigan's been the best team in the country up to this point. They obviously haven't been tested Same. the way a Georgia has, for example. Um, but they've done exactly what they're supposed to do. They've gotten, I think, for the most part, better and better each week. Um, you know, that the game against Nebraska, Nebraska's all levels of terrible. But they went out and they <laughs> absolutely took that game over within five minutes and they were they left no doubt that they were, you know, far and away a better team. And I think that you saw that a little bit against a pretty good Rutgers team from them. So I like I said, I think Michigan's the best team in the country at this point. Obviously, a lot of football to be played. Obviously, they have um, a handful of tests coming up themselves over the next several weeks. Um, you know, really leading into that the that um, run of uh, Penn State and Ohio State and two of their final three games. Um, and I think I'm I had this conversation with a friend a, a couple of days ago, um, kind of coming out of the, the Northwestern game about kind of where are things at, where do I think they are, and I've been around Penn State football long enough for twenty two years since I was a student, really 23rd, 24 since I really kind of got into it. I've seen some really good Penn State teams go to Columbus and play teams that aren't as good as this Ohio State team and just get their doors blown off. And maybe, not that that has anything to do with the 2023 edition of that game, but I, I've seen enough instances of yeah. really good Penn State teams going into Columbus and just not performing well with a lot more going for them than this team does. And this team has a lot going for it, don't get me wrong, but you know, rookie quarterback um, going into a, a setting that's going to be awfully hostile, 
home state, school that didn't really recruit him until the last minute. Um, it's not hard to see where that game could potentially get away from. And that kind of gets into a couple of things we're going to talk about down the road here that um, mm-hmm. give me some red flags in that game, I guess. Um, yeah. But on the on the converse side, Penn State has played worse Penn State teams have played similar or a half step behind this Michigan team really, really close at home. We don't have to look that far far back. Just two years ago, a team with maybe a 70% Sean Clifford with a cracked rib or whatever it was, um, relying on a lot of, um, you know, Kalen King was a freshman quarterback that got ultimately got beat on the long touchdown that won the game. Penn State played a, a playoff-bound Michigan team, a Big Ten champion Michigan team, to three points, and that Penn State team wasn't anywhere near where this one was on either side of the ball. Yeah. Um, and, you know, college football is weird. Winning on the road is hard. Um, we've seen that to some degree in the Illinois and the Northwestern games. You know, they they eventually ran away with it, but there are, you know, I don't care how good you are, it's hard to win on the road in college football, and it's really hard to beat good teams on the road in college football. And we this goes back months and months. You know, if I had to, to pick one of those two games, it's always been the Michigan game, and I kind of had circled that because of that home field advantage and the way Penn State's always played them in Happy Valley, conversely with the way Penn State's historically played uh, Ohio State and Columbus, um, that's kind of, I guess, big picture where I'm at. It kind of leads, I think, into a couple of the questions we have here coming up. Yeah, so obviously there's this Q&A feature uh, on Spotify that we've mentioned a few times. If you're listening to us on Spotify, please go use that feature, submit some questions. We love being able to get questions from that, answer questions from that. And Two questions that we got back in mid-September uh, were, you know, they're basically the same thing. One was from uh, Christopher Wilman Bunge, who asked, assuming that we can beat one of the two or both between Ohio State and Michigan, who do you think we can beat and why? And then a question from Joe, if this season was assumed to be 11-1 with the loss to OSU or Michigan, which team would you rather have Penn State beat and why? And to me, Matt, this is a simple question. I'd rather they beat Michigan for basically three reasons. One, uh, my girlfriend went to Ohio State. My life would be a whole hell of a lot easier if she wasn't mad at me because Penn State beat Ohio State. Two, and far more importantly, you would rather win, lose the game on the road and win the game at home, especially because three, if Penn State is going to make the playoff at 11-1, and it would be considerably more likely that they have a chance to do that if they get that loss out of the way as soon as possible. We've seen over the course of uh, college football history since the playoff was implemented that you can overcome a loss if it happened early enough, and as long as you're not getting the doors completely blown off of you. So if you make me choose, you know, Penn State lose one of these games 31-24 and win one of these games 31-24, which one are you picking? I think of that Michigan game 11 times out of 10. What about you? Well, to answer Christopher's question, I think I just did that with why I think uh, Michigan is the the team they can be with that home field advantage. If I had to pick one, I would pick Michigan as well. Um, Selfishly, I live 20 minutes from Ann Arbor. I am surrounded by Michigan fans everywhere I go, and they've only, like, they, like, multiplied exponentially in the numbers of them in the last couple years as they've made the playoff and won the Big Ten the last two seasons. have have you noticed an uptick in merchandise at the local Walmart? I don't live very near a Walmart, but I have to imagine <laughs> sales have been been off the charts um, with with Maze and Blue Gear. Um, 
and also my as we've talked about before on this podcast my wife is a large michigan state fan um very disappointed in the in the uh the, everything the, the, we'll everything, everything going on in eastland she's very excited that that uh the the camp out for midnight madness whatever they call it now for the start of college basketball season is coming up i believe this friday so um the spartans have, a, have an unbelievable basketball team coming back this year so so that is that's the one good thing going for Michigan State athletics at the moment, um, but obviously Michigan State fans live to beat Michigan, and so my, my household as a whole would be very happy um, uh-huh. to see Michigan lose that game. Um, plus, you hit on I think the reasons why um, that's the game that you want. You know, and I, I know losses haven't always meant as much to the college football playoff committee. But a loss on the road to a top five, we'll say Ohio State team, um, sounds a lot better than a loss at home to a top five Michigan team. Um, you know, the, it... the quality of the win against either one of those teams is, is you know, conversely the same. Um, but I, I think Michigan's the, the two-time defending Big Ten champion, um, been to the playoff the last two seasons. Um, they're, they're they're the king of the Big Ten right now, and I think. You know, all things considered, that's the team that you want want to knock off. If you had to, if you only can get one, that's the one that you want. Yeah, and I really can't stress how like the schedule makers really ha- helped answer this question for me. Penn State, assuming that Penn State were to lose to Ohio State, they would pr- they would probably come back the following week and blow the doors off of Indiana and Happy. Then they have to go to Maryland to play a tricky Maryland team, but one that I think Penn State matches up very well against and has blown the doors off of for years. Then they get, theoretically, that win against Michigan. Next week, at home, a bad Rutgers team that would gum that game up a bit, but Penn State would be able to handle them. And then finishing the season with, for whatever reason, a neutral site game against Michigan State, where Michigan State, on a Friday night, where Michigan State takes away its the home field advantage to the extent they possibly have it. So... Penn State, assuming this hap- this were to happen, would end its season potentially blowout win, blowout win, win over Michigan, blowout win, blowout win. You want that over scrap out of winning against Ohio State, blowout win, blowout win, and then throw a loss in the middle of that. So I, I'm I, I'm I, I don't know if I think Penn State is going to win either of those games, Matt. I think there are things about both, and we could talk about this quick before we get into the hot take portion of the podcast. I think there are things about Ohio State and Mich- Ohio State more so than Michigan that I think Penn State could really take advantage of. I don't think Ohio State's offensive line is especially good, and for whatever reason, their running game just hasn't been quite as like. Well, well it's probably related to this. Hasn't been quite as like game breaking as I thought it could be. Plus, I don't think Kyle McCord is white been as exceptional as I think uh he could be and then against Michigan like they're the more well-rounded team but that game's at home but like it's gotten to a point where I don't think it's going to be hard for me to convince myself that Penn State can win either of those football games I think that's 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 perfectly reasonable yeah and I think on the heels of being perfectly reasonable it's time to be a little bit unreasonable and we're going to do that by giving hot takes about, again, Penn State's offense and then Penn State's defense. Matt will go first on offense. I'll go first on defense. And we'll talk through them a little bit, and then we're going to get through some of uh, the ones that we got from uh, Twitter. So, Matt, the floor is yours. What is your big hot take for Penn State's offense uh, so far this season, going forward, whatever it might be? 
I'm I'm going to qualify this with Bill gave me the prompt for this about a half an hour or so before we started recording. So I've had Let's literally go. minutes to to contemplate a, a take hot enough. And I, I don't know if this is the temperature on this is sufficient enough. And it's been something that's kind of been bandied about um, on the on cords of the Internet and within our various friends groups um, that Bill and I are both in that the, the Penn State offense is, yes, it has looked slow and methodical and kind of lack, lacking ex- explosiveness, obviously, is kind of the, the, the buzzword. My, my hot take is that they have, I want to make this sound spicy, they, they have held back what they are capable of and have asked Drew Aller to do, knowing that they didn't need to do that through these first five games Ooh. and knowing that they've basically now got two weeks to prep for that first big test in Columbus. So you so you are of the belief that they have been sandbagging things a little bit then? Yeah, I, I that's that's the spicy hot takeaway to put it. Interesting. I, I, I think and to make this sound like I haven't completely lost my mind and there's not some, you know, back room, you know, smoky room with with low light where Joe Frank or Jeff, James Franklin, Franklin and Mike Yersich are are sitting, you know, smoking cigars and and tearing pages out of the playbook and, and crossing off calls on the play sheet that um, we know these will work, but we don't want to put them on film so we can drop them, you know, all on on Ryan Day um, in a few weeks. But what I'm getting at, I think, to put it more or less conspiracy theory, is. <laughs> These first five games have been the the way you lose any of those games, especially you know the West Virginia game, the Illinois game, and, and the Iowa game, the three tougher opponents that they've faced, is you make mistakes. And as we t- I mentioned earlier, they knew they could lean heavily on the defense that was returning the star power, returning all the experience in the key spots, and go out and tell Drew Aller, hey, take care of the ball. You know, you know where the checkdowns are. Play it safe, unless you're, you know, 110 percent confident that the deep ball is there or the more risky throw of the middle is there. Um, Eleanor, and to back this up to some degree, I think we saw some of those riskier throws. Um, you know, taking more chances in the West Virginia game to start the year, and they've dialed it back. I, I think you would agree, and I think most people would agree that the offense that we saw against West Virginia, at least from a passing standpoint is more simplistic in the four games since than it was against the Mountaineers. Yeah, you you look through it, Aller in that game against West Virginia, uh, 21 for 29, 325 yards, three touchdowns, and uh, no picks. Since then, against Delaware, 204 yards and a touchdown, Illinois, 208 yards and no touchdowns, Iowa, 166 yards and four touchdowns, uh, my guess is the longest of those is probably about like six yards, but I have to go back and look at that in the Northwestern 189 and one touchdown. And I, I, I basically said on the last pod that if you're doing the one and know this week thing, I don't think you could like hold stuff back. I don't think you could be like, all right, we're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to go all out to win this game. And I think there has been a bit of, uh, you know, you've heard it in James Franklin, in Drew Aller, in Mike Yuris' when he spoke today. We need more explosive plays. We need more explosive plays. But I think the way that you put it, Matt, where 
it's it's basically still part of the process of holding Drew Aller's hand and walking him through this. It's not necessarily going out there and saying, "All right, we're running, we're running, opening the first three pages of the playbook, and the next seven pages we're going to keep shut until those games." I think that makes sense, and my outtake kind of goes off of that, and it has to do with how Penn State's offense takes that next step. And to me, it's that Penn State's offense won't up, open up until Trey Wallace and Omari Evans are 100% back at wide receiver. It was something that I believe, uh, I, I want to say this was from uh, Ben Jones today in statecollege.com. Uh, give me one second. Uh, yeah, Ben wrote today, uh, uh, Penn State is hopeful for the full-time returns of Amari Evans and Trey Wallace, who both missed time. Wallace, in particular, has not played consistent snaps this entire season, but both he and Evans, according to Franklin, are cleared, but not yet 100%. And Matt, I basically think that the big plays in Penn State's offense, there are basically two ways you have big play wide receivers. You either have the big physical guys who just win 50-50 balls all the time, and Penn State doesn't really have that Malik McLean did a little bit of it, but it seems like he's just kind of lost his grip on things. Theo Johnson, Tyler Warren have not really been stretched the field types of guys or speed kills. And in Keandre Lambert Smith, they have a guy who is fast and polished. And a guy in Dante Cephas and in Kevin Saunders to extents, they have guys who are both fast but are still kind of finding their way. I think when you add the injection of speed, athleticism, an understanding of the offense and Drew Aller in particular that both Trey Wallace and Omari Evans bring, that is going to open a lot of stuff up down the field, both in terms of having guys who can get open down the field and having guys who Drew Aller knows trust that sort of thing. What do you think about Trey Wallace and Omari Evans? I don't want to say totally being the key, but being a really big part of the best version of Penn State's offense. I, I think... Whether it's, I, again, I had a conversation with someone today about this kind of, this, this is the, the topic du jour around Penn State football at this point is, mm-hmm. quote unquote, what's wrong with the offense? And I think, you know, a lot of you, we just talked about the West Virginia game versus the four games since, and Delaware is kind of a throwaway. I know Trey Wallace was healthy yeah, in that game. No, That's where sure. he got banged up. Um, but th- that noticeable difference coincides pretty directly with Trey Wallace missing time. And I know he played limited snaps against Iowa, but, you know, he wasn't really a factor. He was noticeable that either he was still banged up or was being cautious or whatever it might be. But I think whether it's Trey Wallace or Amari Evans or someone, we knew going into the season, a lot of the talk was they they liked what they had with Lambert Smith. They liked what they had with Wallace. They needed that third guy. And now yeah. they've lost one of those two guys that they knew they could, they could rely on in Wallace. And it's exposed that gap from one and two to three and beyond because now you're asking no one who's grabbed that third spot to all of a sudden sudden be the number two guy. And the guy that was fighting for the fourth or fifth spot is now the number three guy. Whoever those guys are in any given week, whether it's Liam Clifford or Caden Saunders, um, whoever it it is. But none of those guys have grabbed the bull by the horns. And that's been magnified because one of the two guys that they felt comfortable with and presumably Drew Eller feels comfortable with hasn't been there. Um, and obviously, the opposing defensive coordinators know this. They know that without Wallace there, there's not another guy that they need to necessarily be concerned with. They're going to force one of those other guys to beat them. And if they do, great. 
and they've taken away Lambert Smith. His numbers have, have dropped. His explosiveness, explosive opportunities have dropped. And again, this all kind of coincides with that Wallace injury. So I think the easiest solution, like you said, is Wallace comes back healthy. The less ideal solution or the less likely solution at this point is someone else steps into that role yeah. and becomes that that second option. Um, this, it's it's close. It feels like, you know, they're they're one play away. They're one mistack, one, uh, you know, make a guy miss away, one block away. Um, and I think getting that level of comfort back in the passing game with a guy like Wallace does unlock a lot of that. It, you know, slots those, that group of guys battling for the third spot. It puts them back in the right roles for what they are at this point. It focuses def- it either forces defenses to focus on another, another receiver or if they're going to continue to focus on Lambert Smith, that's going to open up opportunities for a guy in Wallace who has mm-hmm. proven that he can do it. Um, so I, I think that that's a perfect, it's hot, but it's perfectly fair. Yeah. Right. And I, I think it also helps out the running game, right? When you have to focus more, you know, take that extra guy out of the box, make those safeties go a little bit farther back, spread your defense out because you know, there are those extra playmakers. I, it puts a w- little bit more space for Nick Singleton and K Tron Allen and increasingly Trey Potts to be able to exploit. But I, I want to just say real quick before we uh, make the pot a little bit of money and then move on to defense. Uh, Matt, have you looked at Penn State's leading receivers this year lately? I haven't. No, I, I keep meaning to, especially as this conversation goes on and on during this off week. But I have not looked at it probably in a couple weeks. Well, I, I decided to pull it up when we were talking, and I find it fascinating. Unsurprisingly, Keandre Lambert Smith is their top receiver, 25 receptions, 372 yards, and three scores. He's been, I I think I would say, Matt, he has been everything through five games that I expected him to be, especially when you add that caveat of teams have really been able to focus in on him. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think you know, the, the only negatives have been, you know, there was kind of that Ticky tacky, in my opinion, personal foul against Illinois that killed a drive, and then the mm-hmm. face mask call, which certainly a penalty, and but it's not uh, a, a lack of effort penalty. It's not the kind of penalty that bugs you. It's a guy trying to make a play, and his yeah. hand got high. Um, I mean, that's that's nitpicking, but he's he's been, I think, everything that was expected, and I think, um, yeah, has, has certainly we, we saw it against West Virginia. Not to go bring up this point, but when he was sharing the, the spotlight, so to speak, or sharing the attention of the defense of the uh, Mountaineer defense, he really put on a show. He showed what he can do when he has those advantageous matchups. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to get to the weird part of this. Penn State's second leading receiver is Tyler Warren with 14 receptions. Third is Nick Singleton with 13. Fourth is Theo Johnson with 12. They are averaging 8.2, 8.5, and 8.4 yards per reception respectively their longs on the year are 15 19 and 19 yards so Penn I think that really shows the extent to which Penn State has had to turn or Drew Aller in particular has had to turn to his check downs his short options that sort of thing then you get to Trey Wallace who's 10 receptions uh 9.8 yards per catch has those came earlier in the year Liam Clifford's at eight receptions he's gotten one or two in each game Dante Cephas is a seven. He's come on a little bit more lately and is actually uh, fourth in receiving yards at 103. He has actually been a pretty good big down the field threat and he's been able to catch the football. And then you get into Malik McLean, who caught four balls uh, against West Virginia and has caught two since. Kate 
Katron Allocate, Caden Saunders, everyone just kind of in the wash. So I think that really shows the extent to which Penn State needs someone, needs that other option to be able to just let this offense breathe a little more. And I think in getting Omari Evans and Trey Wallace back and fully ready to go and fully healthy and all that, I think they would be able to get, like they'd find themselves in a much better position. The passing game would benefit from it. The running game would benefit from it. Everything. Do you know what else I think people could benefit from, Matthew? This could really go anywhere, but but enlighten me, dear Bill. I think people could really benefit from purchasing something from Homefield Apparel. Yes, Homefield Apparel has been the sponsor of this podcast ever since we've decided to go podcast only. They've been a great group of folks for us to work with, and they've been a great group of folks to Penn State fans, and Penn State fans have certainly reciprocated that in their relationship with Homefield Apparel. Even going back to when uh, Homefield launched its Penn State line and they had the single best day that they have had for any any launch of gear out of Penn State fans. Their Penn State collection is gigantic. It has tons of great stuff, T-shirts. I think there's a quarter zip in there. There are crew necks in there, hoodies in there, joggers in there. A whole lot of stuff that you as a Penn State fan should want to have in your collection. They have a new thing. Uh, yeah, I mentioned this on the last pod. They have a new crew neck uh, for when Penn St- for the 1995 Penn State uh, Penn State participated in the Rose Bowl. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Lots of great stuff and lots of stuff that I think you as a Penn State fan should want to get your hands on. Even if it's not Penn State, if you went to another school, if you have a significant other who went to uh, another school, if you have a friend who went to another school, parent, whatever it might be, Homefield Apparel has something for them. If you want to get something from Homefield Apparel and it would be your first order, use the promo code RLR23 for 15% off of your first order. Order. One more time, the promo code RLR23 for 15% off of your first order as a first-time customer. Thank you once again to Home Field Apparel. Let's get back to the podcast, Matt, and I think it's time to talk about Penn State's defense. Um, I think my hot take is that they're very good. Wow. that's <laughs> I, I have no follow-up thoughts on that. Well, that's the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Uh well, no, let's actually be serious here. And I, instead of kind of talking about a whole position group, I want to talk about one guy specifically, Matt. And my hot take here is that I think Zane Durant is the most important player on Penn State's defense. You look at what Penn State has everywhere else. Their defensive ends are box office. Their linebackers are box office. Their cornerbacks are dogs, especially when Daquan Hardy is out there and they have a three-man cornerback group that can go punch for punch with it. basically any wide receiving core in America. Their safeties uh, have been getting better and better. Incredible talents there. The question for this Penn State team all year has been what they have up the middle of their defense. And I think I they still don't have the one guy, I think, I don't think they have that one guy who can single-handedly take over a game, but I think we have seen this year, particularly in the last week or two, that Zane Durant is the kind of guy who can change games in the middle of the defense. He's not the biggest dude. He's six foot one, two hundred and eighty-five pounds, but his explosiveness, his quick twitchiness, his ability to get into a backfield, all these things. Like, I just think they are invaluable. 
And if he can be that kind of guy who, based on all that, attracts a second body along the offensive line or punishes an opposing team for deciding we're throwing the double team at one of the defensive ends, I think he could take, he's the kind of guy who could help this defense stay and maybe take an even a little step forward from where they've been at this elite level all season long. What do you think about that? No, I like that. I think you could make the case whether it's Durant or, you know, Vandenberg, you just pick any of the, the, the defensive tackles that have that huge upside. We talked about it a lot over the summer, a lot during the preseason stuff we did back in August, that we Penn State had to feel really, really good about what they had, basically every spot in the defense. But there was just that unknown in the middle of the line. They had a lot of guys. They had a lot of guys that they were really high on. But they needed one or two to take that step. And I think, you know, whether it's Zane Duran or any of the other guys that, that have rotated through there, having one or two of them become a disruptor in the middle, like you said, attracting uh-huh. extra attention, making plays, uh, making making teams pay for focusing their attention on on the strength of that line, which is obviously on the edge. Um and and I think Durant probably is, you know, racking my brain here real quickly, probably the guy that has emerged the most. He's made some some disruptive plays. Um, but like I said, I think you could you take any of those defensive tackles and say, if this guy continues to progress, continues to perform at the level he has, and get better and better week, week to week, then that unlocks this next level of what's already an elite defense. And here's the thing. If you have to put two bodies on him, or, you know, you could say Kozai, a guy like Kazai Izzard, Hakeem Beeman, Devon Ellis, whoever, I just think he's the best of the bunch. And if you put two bodies on him, that means you have one-on-one with your def- offensive tackles against any combination of Adisa Isaac, Deny Dennis Sutton, Amin Vanover, Zariah Fisher, Chop Robinson, and whatever Penn State has coming from its blitz packages from linebacker from corner. And if you do that, you are done. You are not going to be able to have success as an offense against a Penn State team where you are putting your offensive tackles on islands against those guys. When you're letting Abdul Carter or Curtis Jacobs basically be a free rusher. Like I, I just think that Durant's play has justified justified plenty of attention, plenty of love. And as he continues to get better, if he continues to get better, and as he continues to attract more and more attention from opposing offensive lines, I think that, again, that can help Penn State's defense potentially take one more step forward. Matt, it's your turn. What is your hot take for the defense? I I like this one more than my offensive ones. The offensive one just felt kind of, I don't know, generic and, and weird. Uh, and maybe this, maybe someone's going to say the same thing about this one. But I think for Penn State to beat Ohio State and or Michigan, Manny Diaz as a defensive play caller needs to break some of his historic tendencies. Obviously, his mo is attack, 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 and we've seen that work in spades through the first five games because they've been able to get that lead, put teams in obvious passing situations, and just let you know the Abdul Carters, Curtis Jacobs, Deny Dennis Sutton. Chop Robinson, you know, all, all these guys that are just, you know, attack dogs, let them do what they do best, attack the quarterback, play super aggressive, play downhill, force mistakes. 
I don't think, at least at this point, with what we've seen from the Penn State offense, that we you can say, Manny Diaz, keep doing what you've been doing because we're going to get you that lead. We're going to put J.J. McCarthy, we're going to put my, Kyle McCord in obvious passing situations where you we know that we don't have to respect the run. We can put our our secondary on the island, make you know, rely on them to do what they do and let those guys up front attack the, the passer. I think what we've seen through the first uh, five games has been they've kind of, they have been, for lack of a better term, more conservative, I think, over the first, you know, half, for maybe first quarter and a half of these first games. Well, the offense slowly builds that lead. Defense gets a turnover, forces that short field, allows the offense to put points on the board and, and create that hole that someone has to dig out of. I don't think it'd be great if it continues that way, but I don't think at this point you can count on better teams, better offenses like Ohio State and Michigan to lose their patience or turn the ball over like Penn State's been able to force through through the first five games mm-hmm. to allow your offense to build that lead. Um, and like I said, I don't think the offense has... This could all switch in a week when we... You know, they open... You're in two weeks, I guess. I don't think we're going to read too much into UMass probably. But when they go to Columbus and we see, you know, the offense, you know, rediscovers or starts to show some of that explosiveness that's been lacking and they come out and they get that lead and they put Kyle McCord and Ryan Day and that offense behind the eight ball. Um, I think Ohio State's offensive line is suspect is a, is a strong word, so I'm not going to use it. But it's I think it's gettable, especially with what Penn State can throw at them on the defensive line. But it's not as gettable if you, you have to respect the run. That's just not mm-hmm. what this Penn State's defense is excels at it's certainly very good at it but it's not what they want to do and I think you're going to need to see Manny Diaz in both those games both those big games show a little bit more patience with and be a little bit more selective about when he attacks the passer because I don't think they're going to be in a position where you know it's a 17 point game with you know a quarter and a half left they need to throw the ball way more than they're going to run the ball Pin your ears back, boys, and go get them. That's, I don't think that's going to be the scenario, and that doesn't necessarily fit into, I think, what Manny Diaz wants to do within his DNA as a, a defensive play caller. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's interesting because I, I think back to it's not a Penn State game. Well, well, kind of. We've seen how many times this year where Penn State, it's a third, second and 18, third and 15, whatever, and just kind of the way that they send guys after a quarterback, it makes it so they're able to tuck, run, pick up the extra yardage they need to for a first down with their leg. Or like, just whatever it is, we've seen a few of those. And I do think last year's team was in a similar I know the Auburn game in particular, they were really bad in those third and really long situations, and it led to teams... Uh, it, it led to team or Auburn in particular. I think TJ Finley was the quarterback who killed them with this a time or two, uh, picking up those big gains with his legs. And it's always interesting because I think of the balance that is required here of knowing how to handle each situation, Matt. And the example for me, and I, I'm guessing this is the exact same example for you, is I think of the end of uh, the Ohio State Notre Dame game, where Notre Dame was getting after Kyle McCord all night and Ohio State's defense was in the mud. And then that last drive happens, 
and Notre Dame decides we're rushing four every single time, we're dropping everyone else into zone coverage, and we're going to put these little pockets of space there for, um, you know, for and we're basically going to dare Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ibuka and Cade Stover to find those pockets of space. And it's an interesting balance that they're going to have to strike, but you saw what uh, you saw what Manny Diaz said today about Ohio State, correct? Oh yeah, I love it. I, I love how it can be taken about fifteen different ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Manny Diaz basically said, "Listen, I'm already we. I already have some really strong thoughts on Ohio State, and I am not sharing them with you." And I I think it kind of kind of going off of what you said, Matt. I think that I think that Manny Diaz is going to understand that if he has to get away from his DNA, he's going to get away or what he just inherently wants to do, he's going to have to get away from it and he'll have to live with that. But I also think that kind of what you said, Ohio State and Michigan are more gettable, or Ohio State in particular is more gettable and more susceptible to pin your ears back and get home. I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how they handle those situations because I do think, especially against Ohio State, there is a chance for Penn State's defense to dictate how that game goes. I don't know if they will, but I think there is a chance that they do that. I'm very interested in whether or not they do that for four quarters. Yeah, and I'm not saying you'll know, go out there and, and you know rush four, drop seven, play cover two, play cover three. I'm right. not saying that. I just think, you know, and you hear announcers talk about this all the time, Manny Diaz is an aggressive, attacking defensive coordinator. And I think that's 99% of what we as fans and what James Franklin and everyone else loves about him. That's why he has the job he has. But I think, and I don't think I'm saying anything like revolutionary. Right. Here. I think everyone in the last building certainly knows we can't just, you know, blitz and blitz and blitz and blitz. I think it's especially against Michigan because we've seen it with guys that certainly aren't J.J. McCarthy running the ball, making them pay dearly for dropping, you know, man on man, yeah. rush the passer. If you don't get home, then there's acres and acres of space. But I think it's going to require, you know, a, a surgeon's touch, so to speak for when when you bring pressure how you bring pressure and you know that last point if you if and when you do get home don't let that quarterback um especially if it's in the Michigan game against McCarthy don't let that guy get away because he's going to make you yeah. pay if he does with his legs exactly and I think that leads really nicely into uh getting to the Twitter hot takes that we got we put the uh we put the call out for them we got a couple that we're going to go through here first one comes from Patty uh, his defensive one, we basically just talked about, which was Manny Diaz's tendency to blitz and play man on third and long gives up too many fake QB runs and will be the cause of my premature death. I think, uh, Matt, you agree with me that I certainly see why you would say that, and I hope that's not the case, both because it's a bad thing for Penn State and I don't want Patty to suffer a premature death. Do you agree with that? Especially in the last part, Patty, don't don't leave yeah. us too soon. <laughs> um, no, and, and I I think, again, we're, we're not, you know, breaking atoms here you know everyone yeah. everyone in college football knows jj mccarthy is a super dangerous runner and i'm sure that you know i know he got asked about the ohio state game but i'm sure manny diaz and the defensive staff had had have had conversations um and maybe thrown some stuff in during this first month and a half of the season to allow for a quarterback whether it's mccarthy or someone else who can beat you with his legs and you know again at it, Manny Diaz, if you're listening, thank you know, thank you for your your uh, your uh, support of the podcast. But um, yes. please do not rely on on some guy in in Novi, Michigan, and some guy in Columbus, Ohio, to be uh, um, 
dictating w- what you think may or may not work uh, schematically. Uh, and then Patty's offensive hot take was that Nick Singleton wax explosiveness because he put on the freshman 15. And I think this is kind of interesting because I, I, I don't want to say this. Be, I, this sounds a lot more harsh than it. I, I probably need it to be. But 74 carries, 283 yards, 3.8 yards per carry, 19 yards is his long. I think coming, if you told me that was going to happen in five games into the season, at the start of the season, I'd say that's a bit of a disappointment. Now, Singleton, they've used him a lot in short yardage situations, so I think that's really knocked down his average quite a bit. He does lead the team with six touchdowns, but I, to what do you think his lack of explosiveness comes to, Matt? Because he is, I, I do, I am pretty sure he is, uh, yeah, he's three pounds heavier than Katron Allen. He is, I, of their main options are running back. He is the beefiest of the bunch. So to what do you, what, what do you think is up with Singleton? I, I haven't watched him this year and thought, hey, that guy isn't as quick or as explosive as he was a year ago. I see a guy that, and someone brought this up, I don't know if it was in our Slack or on Twitter or, or, or one of the other um, groups that were in Bill, but it's almost like the pendulum has swung too far back the other way, where early on last year as a freshman, we saw him continually looking to break that big play, you know, trying to get to the edge um, when the five or six yard carry was there. And we saw him kind of meld those two by the second half, the last third or so of the 2022 season. Eh. It almost to me feels like, and, and you'd have to go back and watch every run to some degree to, to say this, but it almost seems to me like he's seeking out contact instead of trying to make guys miss. Um, you, you watch him in, in, I think it was the Illinois game especially, they got him in space um, in the passing game really effectively a handful of times. And he looked as quick to me as he always did. You know, he he beat you know made guys um, you know lose their angle going down the sideline, just beating them with raw speed. So that's still there, I think. I just think that he's. I think part of it's mental. I think part of it is you made the comment during the game against Northwestern, Bill, that he looks frustrated that he hasn't been able to make that last guy miss and not necessarily mm-hmm. break the long sixty-five yard touchdown run. But turn the six-yard carry into the 16-yard carry. Turn the 12-yard carry into the 25-yard carry by making that one guy miss. And I think it's a combination, like I said, of probably being so focused on taking what's there and, and maybe missing the opportunity to maybe take a chance and break break the big play. And probably just a little bit of dumb luck. You know, guys get his shoestrings. Uh, there was one play, I want to say it was against West Virginia, where he was, you know, felt like an inch or two away from breaking it for a big play. And just got tripped up, and there's probably been a few more of those that have been just super close. You know, a block here, and you know, make a guy miss there, and and we're not having this conversation. You know, it's 74 carries for you know 350 or 400 yards, and all of a sudden those averages don't look as bad because he's you know he's still yeah. scoring, he's still effective in short yardage. So I'm I'm not worried about it because I I think like a lot of things on the offense, it's it's really really close. Yeah, and I I think that leads very nicely into. Uh, the first hot take from our dear friend Bob Blah Blah. Uh, always a reminder: you don't need double talk; you need Bob Blah Blah. And that is that. Stop trying to make the run game balance and do what each back does best. Also, give them longer streaks where they're the guy to get in a rhythm. And I, I certainly get that frustration. Uh, I I think that when they're letting Singleton get the ball in space, he is at his best 
with Katron out, which, you know, we still need to figure out what, what happened with Katron out against Northwestern, what his status is going to be going forward. He's always been the guy who one cut and go. And I think we've seen a little bit more of that with him than we have getting Singleton in space. Uh, but I do, I, I wouldn't hate, you know, four or five straight drives of Nick Singleton and then four or five straight drives of Katron Allen or whatever to get into a rhythm. But then there's the other side of it, right, Matt, where you give a guy too long of a streak and he's not able to get into a rhythm and then you throw the other guy in and he's just completely cold. Like it's, it's, it's a delicate thing to have to balance. I certainly do get it, but it's also one of those things that makes me very happy. I'm not an offensive coordinator or running backs coach. Yeah, I think I think if someone had established a rhythm, and we've seen it a little bit. Um, I want to say uh, Allen's had a couple spells where he's gotten a couple series in a row because he kind of had okay. something going. Um, I think if someone had because consistently establishing a rhythm, they're going to go to that guy, and they've and yeah. Sider's proven that you know as long as he's been here that um, you know, he loves to rotate guys. But if someone is having a bigger day, we saw it last year between these two guys. Um, you know, Catron Allen had a couple games where he was kind of the feature guy because he really had it going. He was really effective against. What they were facing, um, I think the the beauty of what each of those guys brings to the table is that they aren't one trick ponies. I think Allen too often gets pigeonholed into being you know the power back that's gonna put his shoulder down and 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 get what's there. And Singleton's the guy that wants to make you miss and break the eighty yard run. I think we've seen it. We were just talking about it. Singleton can be that power guy. You know, it, it makes it harder to defend defensively. And Allen has a little bit of shiftiness. Allen can make you miss. He yeah. doesn't have that elite breakaway, you know, world-class speed, but he can beat you for a 30 or 40-yard run. Um, and I think that's why you see them use both those guys in every situation. It makes it harder to defend. Um, and they're they're both very well-rounded backs. It's just a matter of, you know, getting someone going with some level of consistency. And then... Uh... Bob's second hot take is defensive one. Kobe is not the most talented king, but he's the bigger Vorp of the twins. Uh, Vorp value of a replacement player for those who aren't uh, aren't stat nerds in the world of sports. And I think that's an interesting one, Matt, because Kobe has been very good, increasingly getting better. But at the same time, Kalen King is awesome. I, I get what, what we're saying here that the drop from Kobe King to Tyler Elsden is a bigger drop than Kalen King to Johnny Dixon or to Daquan Hardy. And I think that's probably a fair point. I think Elsden's yeah. been better since the Delaware game where he agreed. Um, you know, barely played and I don't think he played a whole lot the following week against Illinois. He he Kobe is the better of the two players. I I think we can agree on that. Um but I don't think I don't think the gap is nearly as large as it was a month ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that gap from, you know, Kalen King's going to be a top 15, top 20 pick in the draft in April in all likelihood, um, assuming he stays healthy and, and, you know, does everything that we expect him to do the last half of the year. Um, and, you know, Johnny Dixon's no slouch by any means, but there's a pretty big drop off from, you know, first day NFL draft pick to, you know, I don't know if Johnny Dixon's a second or third day guy, but that's that's a pretty big drop, especially when it yeah. you consider what it allows you to do from an overall defensive standpoint. You have that guy that you just leave out there against the number one guy from the other side, and you know, let him do what he does. You you know, it's guaranteed to happen now, Matt. Kobe King is going to have a monster monster game against Ohio State, 
and Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to eat Kalen King alive, and we're going to look like fools for not agreeing with this immediately. Uh, even even though I do think it's possible Marvin Harrison Jr. just has a monster day because he is a freak of nature. Uh, moving on to Saturday, Dad. Uh, his first one to stick at the backfield. Trey Potts needs an expanded role in the offense. Singleton and Allen want to run people over. He's more elusive. And I disagree a little bit with Singleton wanting to run people over. I think he's ju- that's just been the thing for him. We know when he wants to be elusive, when he thinks that's the best option he can be. But I will say this. I thought Trey Potts in his cameo uh, a- a- against Northwestern, Matt, he definitely looked like a change of pace to what Penn State has had in its running back room. They could certainly use a little bit more of him. Yeah, I think um, I listened to a fair amount of the Northwestern game on the radio, just um, had some things around town that day. Um, and one of the things I can't remember if it was um, Steve or, um, I, God, this is embarrassing. I just blanked on our Hall of Fame uh, color Jack, analyst. Jack. Thank Jack. you. Thank you. Steve or Jack. Sorry, Mr. Ham. I I will I'll take a lap when we uh, finish this up um, for that <laughs> that massive faux pas. Um, but Potts, I th- they both one of them mentioned was a really solid um, pass protector, and I haven't watched closely mm-hmm. enough to say if you know Singleton and or Allen are lacking there. I think they're both pretty good. Nothing jumps out to me, you know, as oh my god, I can't believe they they missed this or they missed that. Um, what I do think, especially against Northwestern, that um, Potts brought to the table was a level of calm. We mentioned earlier, it mm-hmm. felt like Singleton was getting frustrated. Just, you know, it wasn't happening as easily as it ha- as it ha- did a year ago. And there's a million reasons why that could be. And I think getting Potts in there um, kind of steadied things. He got them, he tied the game up um, with the, the first touchdown of the day. Um, he, he just kind of had that calming presence, I think, that a team that has, you know, as great as Singleton and Allen are, they're both second-year players, You've got a first-time starting quarterback. You've got, you know, um, a lot of inexperience on on the, the skill positions on offense. Having that guy that's been there and done that and seen just about everything there is to see in this game, um, I think is an invaluable part. And I think, um, you know, a, a positive of whatever injury um, Allen picked up in Evanston is seeing Potts get that bigger role and um, you know, really flourishing with it. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's worth mentioning that coming into this season, uh, Trey Potts in his career, obviously a much older guy, but been around far longer. 248 plays from scrimmage are, yeah, 248 plays from scrimmage for him. Nick Singleton, 167. K. Tron Allen, 187. He, he has seen a lot and he has been in a lot of situations in his college football career, including like by all accounts from PJ Fleck, an absolutely horrific injury where he's still fortunate to be playing football. Like all, all that stuff, he has been through everything. What is a little bit more football for him. And I think having him as, like you mentioned, Matt, that kind of calming presence for Singleton, for Allen. Yes. It kind of goes to that previous point about longer streaks, get guy in a rhythm, suddenly throwing a third guy in there makes that a little bit more tricky, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate when the offense just needs to settle down a little bit if he has a little bit more of an expanded role. And then for Saturday, Dad, his defensive hot take, a big solid back could have a field day against the interior of our D-line. I understand that point, Matt. I agree to it. I agree with it to an extent, but as the year's gone on, I felt better and better about uh, 
felt better and better about their ability to hold up and run defense. Yeah, I mean, I think we will learn more in three weeks in Columbus, two and mm-hmm. a half weeks in Columbus. Um, but I think they have certainly taken steps from the the West Virginia game against what you can make a case might be the best interior offensive line they face, including Michigan this year. Um, yeah, you know, they've you know the Mountaineers have three really good guys at center and guard, um, guys that Penn State would would love to have on their line, which is I think we would agree is pretty good in and of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I certainly understand the sentiment. Um, you know, it, it's it's prove it time, right? We saw it. You know what Corum and Edwards did to them on the interior last year, um, which I'd argue was only part of the issue. There was kind of a a failure on the whole at the defensive level. Um, I thought they 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 did quite well against Ohio State last year. Um, Henderson broke the big run, um, but I I don't have the same level of concern at this point about. You know the, the the physical you know the the Michigan scenario from last year. I don't I don't see that happening this year with this group. I think they've like you mentioned earlier Zane Durant. They've had some guys step up in the middle. They've I think created an advantageous situation for those guys in the middle because of how good the guys on the outside are. And I think they've done a really good job schematically by bringing um you know when they they feel confident about where the play is going bringing the guy, extra guy down to support the run in the middle of the defense. Yeah, and they've been stout as a rushing defense. Uh, they're allowing 74.2 rushing yards per game. You go through the teams, that their uh, games this season against Power 5 competition, West Virginia 3.7 yards per uh, attempt against them, uh, Illinois 2.7, Iowa 1.2, uh, Northwestern 1.4, obviously sacks are part of that. But even beyond that, like teams just haven't been able to really run the ball against them. And yes, there is a there is a little bit I would say of okay, there's some concern here. Uh, okay, they their biggest tests are on the horizon. We'll get to that in one second. But I think you don't dominate to the extent that they had unless you're really really good. And I think that they have t- done everything I've needed to see out of them to think that they can hold up. What I, I don't think, let me, uh, let, let me in some really excellent podcasting pull up how many yards per carry Michigan had against them last year. Uh, Michigan last year was at 7.6 yards per carry against them. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen again. It might be five. It might be five and a half, but it's certainly, I don't think, going to be quite that emphatic. Uh, and then from miles away, uh, his two hot takes. One, someone is about to break through in the wide receiver room. Matt, I think we've uh, mostly touched on that, but is there anything you would like to add, you would like to, add to that beyond what we've already discussed so far? No, I, I, I would agree that I think they're, mm-hmm. they're close to figuring out the wide receiver room, especially with, with getting some of those injured guys back at 100%. And his defensive one, nice responses to the early test. Now comes the next level, I believe. And love that sentiment. Uh, but I would agree. Like, we've built, a, I, I think a lot of Penn State fans have built this season up as it comes down to two games. Uh, even beyond those two games, there's a really tricky game against Maryland in there. But for what we've seen so far, Ohio State's, probably going to get theirs because Ohio State just gets theirs. Michigan's probably going to get theirs because they just get theirs. But 
I feel compared to where we were coming into the season when I was very high on Penn State's defense, Matt, I feel like Penn State could go to war against anyone in the country and their defense is going to give them a shot. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we can talk stats, we can talk advanced stats. Just watch them. You know, they've got, this is, you know, overly they have simplistic. They've NFL guys They've everywhere. got dudes everywhere. Yeah. It, and it's not just dudes. It's like, Chop Robinson's going to be a first-round pick. Deny Dennis Sutton looks like he could be a first-round pick. Abdul Carter, first-round pick. Potential first round pick. Curtis Jacobs, first round day two pick. The guy's a corner. The guy, there is that level of guy everywhere. The scheme that they are playing in, it, it's just so perfectly suited uh, for all of them. I, I, I can't find the quote. Uh, let's see. The quote from uh, Manny Diaz. Uh, October and November are going to come through and come and go. And that's really going to tell the story of our football season. He had uh, another quote from his press conference today where he thought the guys were trying to be perfect against West Virginia and Delaware. Uh, this is from Walter Snyder, The Athletic. We started having fun. We look like we're having a lot of fun now, Diaz said. One of my favorite plays in the game on Saturday, we told the guys it's 10-3, we're down in Northwestern, and we just punted them the ball with like five minutes left in the second quarter. That's not really going according to plan. Our kids, before we took the field on defense, they were in a great headspace. They were ready to have fun and play. I think we're seeing a little more of 11 guys becoming one of that unit. You can't ask for anything else at this point. And I think that that makes it so. I don't know what's going to happen in Columbus. I don't know what's going to happen in Happy Valley against Michigan. But I do know that that defense is going to be able to throw a haymaker against them and it's going to be a blast. Uh, Is there anything about this defense that does concern you, Matt? Or is there anything as you look forward that makes you think like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about this. Not, I mean, you know, an injury, you know, yeah, you know, to to the wrong guy. But e- even then, and obviously, we were just talking about it. You know, if if Kalen King gets banged up, God forbid, you know, yes, there's a drop back, but you still have Johnny Dixon, who's really, really good. Um, he's not first day, first round NFL draft good, but he's starting for. 95% of the teams in the country probably. Um yeah. you know if 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 Chop Robin Chop Robinson did get banged up at Northwestern and look what happened. <laughs> um you know it, <laughs> it 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 you know next guy up. And he, there really isn't, you know, they like um uh like Miles said, they responded to the early tests. Um you know they you know, the the Iowa game, yeah, it's easy to you know to laugh about it now because they went on to dominate that game and gave up 20 yards after the the first couple series um but Iowa had the ball first down at like the 20 yard line before the uh the, the fumble and you know that game was going exactly how Iowa wanted it right down to the the weather conditions um and they responded they responded to you know you, you have to search for it a little bit um you know but against Illinois the offense you know it wasn't really clicking um, they kept giving him the ball back, you know, in great spots. They were they were forcing mistakes from Altmaier against Northwestern. They yeah. got down early. The offense was all out of whack, and and they they made plays to keep it close. They fumbled the opening kickoff, and Northwestern went backwards and kicked the field goal. I mean, that's yeah. You have to search for the the, the slightest bit of adversity that they've faced. And they've they've come out in spades every time. Yeah, I did. The only thing that has me go, it's not even a concern. It's more like, I'm going to keep an eye on this. It's like, they're, they've been so good at turning teams over. And so and this is, in a way, 
an a, a a thing with the offense. Uh, they've been so good at turning teams over, and so good at forcing mistakes, and so good at forcing things, to, getting things to snowball for the other team, and so good at putting the offense in positions where they can have a quick drive, or don't don't have to go particularly far to be in field goal range, let alone be near the end zone. That I just wonder what happens if that dries up a little bit. But for the most part, like I can't sit here and be too concerned about them. And Last one from Jake. Uh, th- the first one's a little more serious. The second one's a, a lot more funny uh, to me. So his offensive one, an RPO-style offense can compensate for weaknesses at the receiver position, and Bo Perbula is best suited to lead it. Uh, Matt, I'll be honest. I'm surprised that this is the first one regarding the quarterback position that we've got. We asked for hot takes, and, and I don't know if you can get hotter than that. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I... Mean, I, I, I Seeing the second part of this question makes me think that, or the second, the, the defensive hot take that we're going to hear in a second, makes me think this is at least mostly in jest, if not more. I don't want to don't want to assume too much, um, but to take it, you know, you know, to respond to it, I guess. Um, Bo's been really good, but I think you know this offense and what Mike Yersich wants to do revolves around what Drew Aller can do with his arm. Yeah, and I. I... I'd basically say that RPO doesn't necessarily always include quarterback. Oh, absolutely. Football, right. Like I, I, I think we saw against Northwestern, they have a, they're a little more comfortable than I thought they were going to be with having our use his legs. I think he had one like nine yard gain, uh, where he ended up running it. They called a QB power on the goal line. They, they're not afraid of having him run the ball, but in terms of like the one thing I'm not concerned of with Drew Hour being able to throw the football is him having to make a really quick decision to either hand, basically ask him to do an RPO thing, hand it off, look down the field if someone is able to win on like a slant route or something, pull it and throw. Like that, I actually think he could do really well. So I would I would say that. And then uh, Jake's hot take on defense. I'm so happy this is the last one we're going to do. Knock knock on wood, Manny leaves, leaves at the end of the season. Ferris regime topples, top choice Phil Parker. Uh, I'd love it if... Phil Parker would be Penn State's defensive coordinator someday. Um, I don't think this is going to happen. <laughs> um, mostly because I just can't fathom the Ferentz regime being toppled in uh, in Iowa City. Uh, what, what do you think about this one, Matt? I, I'm torn between my, my desire to see everything Iowa fail and fall apart and, you know, just kind of crumble. Um and and as as amazing as that would be, and as shocking as it would be, you know, um, Ferris is is an institution for for all the good and bad that comes with that. Um, yeah. It, the other thing is Phil Parker's got to be what sixty sixty five years old. Um, that's very much not yeah. in the the DNA or the the history that we've seen from what James Franklin looks for in in assistance. You know, it's it's the young guy, it's the um, you know up and coming, not up and coming, but the young guy that's established himself, that's you know on the upward trajectory. Phil Parker, for as unbelievable as he's been for yeah, you know, decades at Iowa, but you know before he became the defensive coordinator, he's been there, he's been there since Ferentz got there, um, as as the head coach at least, and 
I just don't think that's necessarily the the route that you see James Franklin go if this is the last year we get a Manny Diaz. Yeah, I mean, Kirk Ferentz was hired as I was head football coach in 1999. His defensive coordinator from 1999 to 2011 was Norm Parker, who was Phil Parker's dad. And during that time, Phil Parker uh, started as the defensive backs coach in 1999 before taking over for his dad in 2012 as a coordinator. So would certainly be fun. Um, you know, we'll talk about, I'm sure at some other point, the future of Manny Diaz, the future of Mike Yersis, future of insert name here. But I think that's enough podcasting for now. Matt, any final thoughts before we send the people on to the rest of their week? Keeping with the Phil Parker theme, wouldn't it be fun to see him with the kind of athletes Penn State has, though? Oh, God. Yeah. You, you, you can... He's had he, some really good could, players yeah. at Iowa. He hasn't had a Kalen King. He hasn't had an Abdul Carter. Oh my God, would that be fun to watch he, in that he's, scheme? He's, he's had guys who have turned into that, but the pure ball of clay that those guys are coming. Like, uh, imagine for a second Micah Parsons, like, or someone of that caliber coming in, someone who is like guaranteed to be a superstar as opposed to. You know, so I think Cooper DeGene was like a top 150 recruit. He was a very good recruit, but I don't think he was a guy that anyone expected to be like what he's turned into. But yeah, it's it's fun to imagine that. Uh, yeah, I, I think we will send everyone out into the week with that final parting thought of how funny it would be if Penn State could break, uh, break up Iowa football like that. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you go to get your podcast. If you use Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a five-star review. If you use Spotify, please use that Q&A feature that's on there so we can get some questions from you guys and have more things to talk about over the course of this Penn State football season. Make sure you're following us over on Twitter at RLR Blog. If you like YouTube, head over to YouTube, subscribe to the podcast there, hop into the comments, talk about things over there. And one last time, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Homefield Apparel. Reminder, for your first purchase, use the promo code RLR23 for 15% off of your first order. One last time, thank you very much for listening. For Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.